That jarring cacophony tells you that you're listening to the one and only Power of Three podcast, and there's no podcast we'd rather be, apart from one with thousands of followers, so it would pay a few quid, but hey-ho, you can't have everything. I'm Kenny Smith, and for the next 50 minutes or so, I and my co-conspirator, who'll introduce himself in a wee minute, are trapped in 1965 as we take a look at the latest Blu-ray or DVD release from the BBC, taking the soundtrack of a lost Doctor Who story and bringing it back to life with all new animation. But who is today's co-conspirator? Well, let's let him introduce himself. Hello, co-conspirator with letters after his name. Good morning, everyone, or good evening whenever you happen to be listening to this. This is John Bolan, delighted to be back once again to uh, witter on about Doctor Who, which is one of my main passions. Nothing wrong with that, John. Nothing wrong with that. And it's hard to believe it's over a is that, is that about a week and a half since we met up and had a mini lunch type thing? That's right, yes, yes. Yeah, it is. Um, Blimey. In a, in a hospital canteen. Thankfully, neither of us was ill. We should clarify that. We should clarify that, yes, yes. Indeed. And Indeed. of course, we were fully COVID compliant as well, so don't need to worry. Exactly. There. So, John, we're going to talk about Galaxy 4. What's up? too quiet. It's almost too quiet. Doctor! We are from the planet Drava in Galaxy 4. You... you don't belong here. No. Nor do the Rills. We were in space above this planet when we saw a ship such as we had never seen before. We did not know it, but it was a Rill ship. It fired on us and we crashed. But before we did, we managed to fire back so that they crashed too. What are they like, these rills? They are not people. They are things. They crawl. They murder. This is a fight to the death for existence itself. I see. In which one of us will be obliterated. When a planet disintegrates, nothing survives. It's in its last moments of life. When is this planet due to explode? We came to rescue you from the machines. If you stay here, more machines will come. They will capture you and take you to the rills. My dear young man, this isn't a joyride. This is a scientific expedition. The rills were quite right. It's imperative we leave at once. You must surrender or die. Ah! No! Soon now, we will break into the rills spaceship. The rills, we will all be. When do you recall first becoming aware of it? Was it through DWM or a Radio Times anniversary special or was it the novelisation? Well, it's really a story that hasn't loomed large in my consciousness. I mean, obviously I was aware of it. Uh, I'd seen some of the the stills, the photographs and so on in various publications, but it wasn't one that I knew a great deal about. And it happened that I've never read the novelisation. I have the novelisation, but I've never actually got around to reading it. I think it was published after I had stopped reading the novelisations regularly in like, you know, the way I used to 
avidly wait till they came out and then I had them read within a day so I think it came out after that and it wasn't one that I tracked down for quite some time indeed I think it was when I actually started to collect the, the novelizations once again and the ones with the new covers as well I ended up going down that route as well so for me the only real contact I had with it was, was when I listened to the soundtrack when it came out and again, it didn't make a massive impact on me. I don't know. I think it was maybe because I was trying to do too much and listen to too many things at the same time. It didn't reach out and grab me as, as such. So that's why I really liked and was pleasantly surprised by the, the new animation. Yeah. For me, it was one that I think I first became aware of it through, it would either have been the Doctor Who programme guide or the 1983 20th anniversary Radio Time special. So it'll be through either of those, and I did keep buying the novelizations. I mean, off the top of my head, I think it might have been number 104. I could be completely wrong in that, and now I feel that I need to have a quick look and check. But it was always one of those ones thing that sounds really interesting. The, the whole central conceit of you've got ugly monsters who are in fact the good guys, and you've got the beautiful space ladies, the dravens, where beauty is only skin deep, which is it's an interesting concept, sort of turning that on its head, whereas obviously we've had the beautiful fowls and the monstrous Daleks before. What do you think of that? Do you think it was quite a nice idea to be able to do that? It was, it was, you know, it's, it's, it's one of several kind of inversions in the course of the story between beauty and ugliness, you know, what's 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 real beauty, what's real ugliness. Um, and similarly, those kind of themes around pacifism and being warlike and, and all of that. Yeah, so, so there's a lot that's going on under the surface. I'm not sure it's always executed particularly well in terms of, well, there's only so much suppose you can do with those resources and telling the story, but a lot of it is left to, I think, a heavy-handed exposition on the part of the Rills, explaining over and over again about how ugly they are, and you would not find their appearance pleasing. But yeah, but also I thought the the whole riff on the fact that the, the Draven are, are these uh, kind of space Amazons with no use for, for men other than uh, some other limited activities. The rest are <laughs> jogging. Killed. I mean, that's exactly. I mean, the re- that's that's a lovely light, you know. And I think it, I think it exists in the in the surviving footage. So yeah, it's a good one. That that made me that made me laugh. It was a, like uh, the two Ronnies, the worm that turned before its time. Maybe that inspired them in some level with the the uh, Diana Doors thing that they did in the series for a number of episodes about the women who take over the world. Which was in turn based on a Doctor Who script that was rejected back in the sixties, Prison in Space. Well, yeah, I didn't know that. I thought I thought maybe the I thought maybe Galaxy Four would have had some contribution, but no. If you tell me that, I will, I will believe you wholeheartedly. And I'm tragically enough able to confirm that Galaxy Four is target novelisation number one hundred four. I just did a quick check there, and yeah, I know I remember I far you- too much. Yep, give yourself some sort of prize in the course of the day. And okay. also punishment as well for being so sad. <laughs> I think it's it's an interesting story. I mean, it's one that myself listened to the soundtrack and it's like, oh. I mean, it's, it's, it's a story that happens. Some great performances in it. You know, Stephanie Bidmead's brilliant as MAGA. And, you know, a really memorable villain, particularly that, almost that soliloquy that she has when she's talking which we can see in episode three when we see the Dravens had originally landed on the planet and she's the one who killed one of the other Draven soldiers and 
I think that she's she's fantastic. I think that's something that even in audio you think, yeah, that's good performance. But I think it's having seen episode three that yeah. made a, that really sort of made the impact. That's where it really struck home as to how good she was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, yeah, the, the, I think her performance is one of the uh, standouts. But the the main ensemble are also on on good form too. And I think William Hartnell's having a good day, mostly or good a good week. Yeah. Um, his performance, I felt, was very solid too. Seems to be enjoying it. So yeah, that was. I was pleasantly surprised to be reminded of its of its strengths. Yeah. And I think, you know, talking about the animation and kind of looking back to the surviving footage, it's made me it's made me appreciate more how good the the original settings were. I mean, obviously they're they're a bit flat and a bit limiting in some respects, but you know the the sets are, are pretty good. You know they've got they've some sort of well, a lot of thought has got gone into them, even if not a lot of money went into them. <laughs> That's so true. That's so true. Because I think I mean we're obviously we've seen all those photos of the dravens, the four of them all out there on the the surface of the planet, with those bizarre mm-hmm. spiky growth things coming out, and the odd chumbly here and there. And yeah, it does look suitably alien. So let's talk about the animation. Do you prefer an animated story that's pretty much a carbon copy of what we would have seen on TV? Or do you prefer something that's more visual and lets the imagination of the producers, directors, and the artists run free? Or indeed, somewhere in between? Yeah, I would say somewhere in between. Uh, I'd like to have the sense that, that what I'm seeing is is connected to what was on the screen. But you know, th- this was this was lovely in the sense that it was it was Doctor Who does Dune, massive expanse of this desert planet with its suns and so on. I mean, that was that was great to kind of play around with that and have a sense of scale, you know, and and and, and the sense of a, a distance between these two encampments, these two these two crashed ships, you know. Whereas on screen that probably looked and felt like about 12 feet between the two the two different sets. So no, I prefer that, and I and I felt that was really particularly strong in this because it is set on a on an alien planet. It does have you know all of those possibilities to have you know going back to William Hartnell's original soliloquy back in the and an earthly child about you know um, birds wheeling in an alien sky and things like that. It was good to see that that sense of a, a truly alien world that they were exploring. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I really like I like something that pays homage to the original. So you've got elements of there, but I don't mind if it's something's made bigger and sort of gives it that extra scope and scale. It makes it really impressive. And I think I've watched the story in both colour and in black and white. So been able to appreciate you know, the fantastic I mean, it feels hot, just all those reds and oranges and bright yellows and things that are in the colour palette. And then the fact that the Dravens are wearing blue, so they're they're cold. And I don't know if that's a deliberate thing they've done with the colour palette, but I think it was a really nice subtle touch. And it's particularly the fact that the Draven clones are ice blue, because I think the originals were supposed to be green, but I think that's a really nice touch. You've got the hot and the cold, and you've got these uh, dreadful, icy, frosty, nasty killer space ladies there. I like the fact that you've got sort of nods to the original, the fact that the Draven spaceship looks more grotty and run down than we get to see it in the surviving clips from TV. And I, I, I think they've done it. That's that's the way I like it. I'd like to think that you know, if, if this team do more in future, then yes, we can see some more uh, like that that will be done with extra 
extra depth to it and just to, to make the world live. Because given that we're in an age now where lots of stuff is possible through CGI that wouldn't have been back in the age, so perhaps it's showing what the original production team would have loved to have done, but just couldn't because of costs and limitations. So, yes, I'm quite, yeah. quite content with that. And, oh, what's that? Why? Let's pause for a wee second. Just through the space-time telegraph, receiving an incoming transmission, which appears to be from our erstwhile friend and colleague, David Steele. So he wants to talk about Galaxy 4, so let's see what he's sent us and what he's got to say. Hello, everyone. David here. Um, coming to you live from Limbo. Um, yeah, Galaxy 4. Yes, I bought the DVD. Bought it from my my former workplace, HMB or Girl Street. God bless him. Yeah, I was very excited that this came out because I'm a massive Hartnell fan. Bill Hartnell's probably my favourite Doctor. And it's been ages since they did a Hartnell story. I think, you know, apart from 10th Planet Episode 4, which was probably, what, around about the time, what, 2013 or something? I think it was around about then they did Reign of Terror. So it's been a long time coming. Fury from the Deep, they just made the sort of apparent sets really big and all that sort of stuff. Expanded the vistas, I suppose, to coin a phrase. And they've done that also with Galaxy 4. You know, the planet looks amazing. You know, the wide sort of orange spread desert. It looks like, you know, Star Trek with a budget. You know, so much better than the, probably what would have been very, you know, very cramped sets on, on original television. I was really pleased with it, with how it turned out. I think it's the sort of story that probably benefited from expanding the vistas. It doesn't quite rely, it didn't quite rely on as much as Fury from the Deep on intimacy and atmosphere to tell the story. I mean, obviously, it's a little bit leaden. It would be an ideal two-parter. I think the cliffhanger would have been, you know, the planet blows up tomorrow and then all of part two is the is the excitement of trying to get away. But, I mean, I thought it was excellent. Stylistically, I suppose it's quite similar to some of the other ones that have been out recently. But it worked for me. Good likenesses for the Doctor, Stephen and Vicky. And I liked how they made the, the Dravens look out, you know, properly identical, you know, emphasising the fact they were clones. Um, Chumley's really good. I liked how they expanded the, the Rill spaceship. The Draven spaceship looked suitably grotty. And it's, it's an interesting story because Peter Purvis, obviously, who appears in bonus features, um, he's never been too positive about Galaxy 4. But there's uh, the nice feature when he's chatting with Toby Hedo, which is, which is a lot of fun. But Stephen's actually really good in this story, I think. You know, it's, I think, maybe just goes to show that Peter, Peter Purvis could polish a turd and honestly turn up gold. He's, he's really, really good. And I, I, I thought the animation did a really good job of capturing the real sort of nuances of um, of what Hartnell and O'Brien and Purvis all did. It was really, really good. Maybe not enough plot to honestly justify four episodes, but you know, there's some real tension at the end when they're trying to get back to the ship in time and take off before the planet starts breaking up. And even they did the lead into Mission the Unknown as well, which is tremendous. So that just leaves me hoping that we get another Hartnell story soon. I think Kenny and I talked in the past about other ones that might have been rumoured, but my hope now is that we get maybe the Dalek Master Plan, or the Massacre, or all of the above. Yeah, what's the next one? I can't remember. Anyway, take care everyone. So, we've uh, shared our thoughts on the animation there, but wouldn't it be lovely if we could hear the thoughts of the executive producer, John? It would be amazing. Well, John, you might not believe this, but it just so happens that earlier this week I had a chat with Gary Russell, who's overseen the Galaxy 4 animation as executive producer. Shall we hear what he had to say about it? The Gary Russell, absolutely. The, yes, the one and only. The one from Big Finish, from Doctor Who magazine, The Famous Five, Dark Towers, The Phoenix in the Carpet. That's the man. 
My name is Gary Russell and I was the executive producer on the BBC animation of Galaxy 4. Gary, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and also thank you so much for Galaxy 4, which we absolutely loved. Hooray, hooray, that's the (laughs) point. I want people to love it. So how did the whole thing come about? Is it a case of the BBC come to you saying we'd like Galaxy 4 done or do you pitch to them to say we'd like to animate a story, why not Galaxy 4? I don't think it would be within the realms of me stepping out of my boundaries to go the likelihood of any human being on this planet ever saying to the BBC, I really want to animate Galaxy 4. I mean, those are just (laughs) words that no one is ever going to imagine that anyone has ever said. No, in the case of all the animations, uh, it is the BBC's choice as to what gets animated. We have no say in it. They say to us, you know, do you want to do this? And we either go yes or no, but we can't turn around and go, well, actually, I'd much rather do the Dalek's Master Plan instead of Galaxy 4. Uh, that, that, that doesn't come up. Because it's uh, to some extent, certainly this first wave, from sort of macro through to now, has been very much led by the quality of the audio. Because we were doing stuff that would have to be good enough to be shown in cinemas in America um, and, and, you know, things like that. So the audio had to be good. So that is how the, these, this first batch were picked. Uh, and that's why we have Galaxy 4, because, you know, Mark was confident that the audio was, was good enough to be cleaned up well enough to be shiny and gorgeous on Blu-ray and hopefully on a cinema screen somewhere in, you know, New York or something like that. Uh, so that's, that's fundamentally, they came to us and said, you know, uh, would you like to do it? Just about finished Food from the Deep, I think. And they came to us and said, would you like to do the Abominable Snowmen? And I said, yes, uh, of course. And then they said, and you could do Web of Fear, episode three as well. And I went, yes, that would make perfect sense. And about two days later, they came back and said, would you be able to do simultaneously Galaxy 4? And I kind of went, so that's 11 episodes being done at the same time. And a bit like an idiot that I am, I said, yes. I said, I mean, I didn't, I discussed it with Mark and I discussed it with Chloe and Jason and everyone first, but we went back and we said, yeah, we, th- we think we can do this. We need to talk to Digitunes and make sure they can do this. And that was the point where we made a decision that because Web of Fear 3 was an episode on its own, we would go a slightly different route and try something else. And we went straight to Shapeshifter with that. So that one didn't go through Digitunes because it wasn't 2D. But yeah, Bonneville Snowmen and, and Galaxy 4, we went to Digitune and said, we want to do these simultaneously. And they were like, yeah, we can do that. So we had all these really intricate schedules worked out where everything would, would bunch up and work together. And then one of the interesting things that happens when you do these animations for the BBC is, of course, you have to have insurance. And so towards the end, I think it was towards the end of 2019, we started sorting out the insurances for Galaxy 4 and uh, Bonneville Snowmen. And... What we didn't really twig, because it was a phrase that none of us had ever really come across before, but in the insurance was the words, you are not covered for COVID-19. And we kind of go, oh, you know, what's COVID-19? Never heard of COVID-19. Because insurance companies knew that far in advance that this was going to turn into a problem. Well, sure enough for us, of course, we get into 2020, we're underway. We started We started Galaxy 4. The idea was we'd do probably the first episode and a half of Galaxy 4 and then start a bonus moment with a second team behind it. Boom, 
COVID happened and it hit India so very badly. It also hit Australia as well, but they weren't quite as bad. They had a bad patch and then they had a lovely relaxed patch at the point where it was getting quite bad in the UK. But in India, it's been terrible all the way through, on top of which it's been, you know, typhoons and everything else. So the, the idea of doing these two stories simultaneously very quickly went out the window because it was totally impossible. The studio had to close, everyone had to work from home. So then it became right, we get Galaxy 4 done and then we move on and get a Bondable Snowman done after Galaxy 4. So it's it's been a very long process. Galaxy 4 took significantly longer than, than well, I think in total, Galaxy 4 probably took almost the same amount of time as A Few From The Deep, which it shouldn't have done, but there was nothing you could do about it. It's a global pandemic. And it's been an interesting experience working with that pandemic. Uh, we had it, obviously, at the, at the tail end of A Few From The Deep, because we were still doing that while we were doing Galaxy 4 and setting up Bondable Summer as well. But it really, it really hit home once we started Galaxy 4. That was the point where suddenly everyone, were into, at least with few from the the studio was still open, even though they were struggling a lot. But by the time Galaxy 4 went into production, no, there, there was no digital studio per se. Um, there were lots of people scattered far and wide throughout Calcutta. And, you know, some people were working sort of two, three hundred miles away. From, from Calcutta as well. Work, and everyone's working from their homes. The internet, uh, particularly sort of fiber optic and things, is not really something that they have going to people's houses. Fine in offices in India, very, very upmarket and, and high grade stuff when you're dealing with an office, but not with dealing with people at home like we have here. We, lots of us have fiber optic going to our houses. It doesn't really happen there. So again, that slows everything down. So the whole process took so much longer than we expected. And, and was quite sort of heartbreaking because of that, because it was a lot of stop, start, stop, start. Oh, we've got a run going and then, oh, suddenly something else has happened in India and they've lost power and Typhoon has hit Kolkata and wiped them out for a couple of weeks. So it's been a long process, I have to say, but a very satisfying one. So I decided at the very start, I didn't, I knew I wasn't going to be directing uh, Galaxy 4 because I wanted to do a Bond Snowman. But before Chloe came on board to do uh, Galaxy 4, Mark, Oliver and I did the setup of it. So I settled on the tone. I decided that it was a studio-based story originally, either at, um, probably, where was it? it was, somewhere it was TV Centre, I think. Or, no, it was all Lime Grove, with bits of it at Ealing as well, but it was all inside. There's no location footage, so no need to put film grain on anything. And it's listening to the audio, was interesting because there's huge long swathes where nothing happens except chumblies go endlessly for about you know 12 and a half minutes or at least that's what it seems like so there's no telly snaps there's very little in the way of useful reference material at all as to what actually happened in the story other than episode three and the little clip of episode one and the clip of episode one isn't that helpful because it's all in one set so i made the decision that we would not really slavishly stick to episode three because we had the opportunity to go bigger and wider and more colorful so i settled on a very technicolor very sort of pulpy late 50s early 60s feel to it i looked at i particularly guided um everyone in in digitunes to go and look at spectre of the gun uh, first episode of the third season of original star trek because it has that very red slightly surreal thing and i sent them endless photos of the australian red desert at the centre around by Uluru and everything around there. And I said, that's the feel I want. I, I want that kind of rocky plain. It's a planet in the throes of death. So the sky's got three suns. So it's 
about to die, so the sky will be as red as the planet. And I wanted that kind of very bright, uh, oppressive feel. With with Fury, we'd gone very sort of into ochres and greys and, and sickly greens and yellows because it was meant to be the 70s. Um, but it was also meant to be very wet and miserable. It was March 1975. It was a very oppressive story inside a base under siege. This isn't. This, this is a big open planet. So you could go colourful with it. And I thought it's not... In all honesty, the world's greatest Doctor Who story. So you were relying on the visuals to carry the story more than the story to carry the visuals. So we weren't really, we were doing a reimagining rather than a recreation, uh, which is actually my philosophy on these animations. We're making them in you know, the 21st century. If you try and slavishly do an animation of something that was made in 1965, you end up making it look as shit as it looked in 1965. Uh, because if you try and say, well, we want it to look like it was filmed in the corner of Lime Grove, which is, you know, no larger than your bathroom, that's not going to... It just looks rubbish. It just makes the animation rubbish. It makes the whole feel look rubbish. For for the most part, these missing stories have telesnaps and other recreations, so there's always going to be something on the DVD that, that represents as close to the original 65 or 60s version as you can get or something. To me, the animations are an opportunity to go bigger and better. Um, and, and more widescreen and more colourful and go, this is what they would like to have done rather than this is what they did. And, you know, you, you're just, you're making a lot of it. Lots of, lots of people who love Doctor Who, you know, almost pensionable age now. And they're the ones who moan the most about the changes that we make. But you've got to bear in mind that actually, you know, these things sell more than to the 150 people who saw Galaxy 4 in 1965 that are still with us. There's, you know, <laughs> quite a few thousand other people who weren't born when Galaxy 4 went out and they want to see an exciting new Doctor Who story in cartoon form that they've never seen before. And there's, a, you know, these things are selling to people from sort of 13, 14 year old upwards. It's not just being sold to the people who saw Galaxy 4 in 1965. So it's a, it's a tricky balancing act to try and keep everybody happy. And then on top of that, you've got to keep the BBC happy. And, and you've also got to do what you can achieve within the budget. The budgets are not high. I, I said to somebody once that the, 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 the entirety of the budget of Few from the Deep wouldn't pay for more than about four minutes of the average 2D Disney animation. Plus, you know, you look at things like Snow White in the 30s or some of the 70s stuff like Aristocats and Robin Hood and things like that, which are all made in the same basic frame-by-frame -frame 2D style. And they had three years to make those. And we've got, you know, a few months to do something that would only pay for three minutes worth of that movie. And we've got to make it stretch to six or four episodes or whatever. So it, it's... It's a huge balancing act and making a decision what you can do within the time of budget you've got that will be entertaining versus what you would love to do if you had the budget of Marvel's What If or something like that, which we don't. <laughs> a shame, because I'd love to see what you would do with it. Oh, I... well, yeah, although I have to say, I don't think Marvel's What If is, is necessarily in places the greatest modern animation out there. It's very good. But I look at sometimes and go, oh, what were you doing there? Or oh, what were you doing there? But, you know, there's lots of brilliant animation. I love Death and Robots, the Netflix series. It's just phenomenal for showing you what animation can do. And there's a brilliant new Blade Runner animation series. But, yeah, it's uh, it, it's an interesting market to be trying to do something in the Doctor Who market, which is, by default, Doctor Who fans are quite negative and quite 
hard to please and lots of them don't want to be pleased they'd rather be surprised and go oh my god that's a thousand times better than i expected rather than starting from the thing of this will be good and so you know you're fighting all of that but the bottom line is you have to do what the bbc want and and deliver what they need and that's our job yeah i mean i think there's some wonderful stuff like i mean the attention to detail on the the driving guns brilliant but i just love the fact that you've got like the the driving soldiers are you've picked up on the fact they're clones so they all look the same brilliant yeah of course i mean that's what they would love to have done in 1965 is cast you know triplets and and they didn't so so we did i also thought they're, they're sort of these quite big amazonian warriors if you were building in a in a test tube some soldiers you would not build soldiers who are about five foot six which is what they are in in the tv version so i made the decision that the three drive-ins are all six foot five um, and Margaret is six foot two and i did that as well because peter purvis is, is quite tall as well i think he was i think he was six one and i wanted the sequence where Margaret picks him up by the neck and literally just holds him up to sort of show the supremacy of, of no matter what you do, you can't defeat Drabins. So I wanted them to be much taller, much more imposing. And that was good because that gave us the chance to make the spaceship a little bit bigger than it was in 1965. And, and it helps sell the story that, that the Doctor and Stephen, and particularly Vicky, are really out of place in the furniture. So when they're sitting in the seats at the table, Vicky is really kind of tiny and Margaret is completely in proportion to her own seat. So it immediately says she's in charge and, and, and Vicky is in sort of subservient. Likewise, Vicky lying on, on, on the bed, which is, you know, twice the size of her. And it's all about just telling the story in those ways because there's, you know, you've got to find new ways in animation of telling a story. So I did it a lot through making decisions about scale and size and power. Yeah. And the Chumbleys, were they fun to have animated? They were interesting to be animated. They're, they're, they're quite dull um, because they have no discernible pattern. The originals have little flashing lights, or one of them actually has little rotation flashing lights. We made a decision, I made it, I see, we, I made a decision not to do that in the animation because it would take forever. So we played around with them. We gave them three different stages of height. So they, they are either folded down or they're folded down, but the, one of the levels is up. And then there's a full version where every level is staggered up and you can see the rings between them. And then there's stuff coming out of the top. We gave them the little glowing ball that they hold to communicate with. We gave them a couple more appendages than they had in, in the original, just to make them a little bit more menacing and at the same time, a little bit more comical. Um, it's actually quite a witty script. Galaxy 4. Actually, I shouldn't say that. It's not a witty script, but the actors play the humour in it very well. There's very little humour, but when there is humour, they play it. And sometimes when there isn't humour, they still play the humorous side of it. And it works quite nicely for that. There are moments where you can actually laugh out loud at Galaxy 4, or with Galaxy. We're not laughing at you, you're laughing with it. Because Hartnell and, and um, Peter Purvis and Maureen O'Brien are so very, very good at comedy. And, and especially up against Stephanie Bidmead, who I think is, frankly, one of the best 60s characters she is fabulous she carries the entire thing she's a great villain and she's a great great performance so again you know you're just doing this stuff where you want to try and find new ways of telling the story as best you can in in a, in a limited palette of, of 2d animation likewise at the end 
and we've no idea what happened at the end of Galaxy 4. I'm reasonably confident that they didn't blow a planet up and have lava spewing up and have the actresses playing dragons and Chumblies falling into lava. We had that opportunity, the sound effects are all there. You know, my attitude towards that is, if there's a sound effect, let's use it. If there's a lot of space where nothing is being said, we can fill it with, with anything. I won't cut any sound out, but I have no problem enhancing it or making the most of what is there and telling a slightly different twist on the story. And then, of course, at the very end, we have the great fun of setting up Mission to the Unknown. I think there was a conversation had that lasted approximately long enough for me to go, no, where somebody said, should we just cut that off and not do the Mission to the Unknown bit? Do we need it? Should we just end Galaxy 4 with them in space? No, because A, you're not cutting sound, and B, no, we've got to set up, you know, Mission to the Unknown. And that was lovely, because it, it, there are no photographs of Mission to the Unknown uh, showing what, what the people costumes really look like. So I went with the, the, the recreation that the students did up north a few years back. Uh, they did that beautiful live action recreation of Mission to the Unknown. And I loved the design of the suits, the jumpsuits they wore on that, and so that's what we put. Jeff Garvey in a version of, of that. It was a little tip of the hat to, to those guys because I think they did such a brilliant job. So all these things were, were sort of sorted out and decided upon before poor Chloe came on board as director. So she was kind of lumbered with this and my decision making. I was like, I've made all these decisions, Chloe. This is what's happening. Off you go, you're the director. I'm not. I'm just the producer. Uh, and she coped manfully with it. But yes, so she was in charge of the animatics and she was in charge of, you know, what happened beat by beat. I just did the, the, the audio script and off we went. And of course, the story is available to watch in colour and mono versions, which I think yes. is a lovely, lovely little thing. It's been able to do that and just, because I've watched it both ways and they both feel like... See, that's the interesting thing. Again, we didn't do this on, on Fury. We had black and white and colour on Fury, but because there's no existing episodes, we were able to do everything in 16.9. So the black and white versions in 16.9, but because there's an existing episode of Galaxy 4 and, and some people I'm sure will watch animation, animation, live action, animation, and miss out watching the animated episode three, you fools. So we had to do the, 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 the black and white animation has to be done in, in 4.3. Well, it isn't, done. We, we, it's just the black and white version, it's just the color version, but we have to frame everything as we're animating with a 4.3 border on it, so we can try and keep 90% of the action within the 4-3 border. And then during post-production, occasionally you do a pan and scan just to move things around, just so that everything stays in the 4-3. That's an interesting experience because it's worth noting that, as I say, we're working with Digitoons in India, who's one of the most experienced animation companies in the world, but they've never dealt with black and white before or, or designing stuff that can be seen in black and white. More importantly, they had no idea what 4-3 was. <laughs> No, one's, no one has worked in 4.3 in animation in over 20 years. Wow. So when you consider that the average age of the people working on this show in India is probably about 25 to 30, 4.3, the idea of doing animation with a 4.3 border and saying, yeah, that's great, but actually that hand gesture, can you can you just make it slightly more vertical because otherwise his hand's going to go out the 4.3, which is fine with the 69, but it'll be cut off in the 4.3. And they're like... What are you talking about? And, and another thing that, that Digitunes are not used to, of course, is the actual style of, of realistic proportioned human animation. There's no animation since, since Snow White where humans look like humans. Every character in any kind of animation over the years 
is exaggerated. You, your heads are bigger. You know, you look at look at what they do now with lower decks. Look at what they do with Prodigy and things like that. But going right back through the the eighties and the seventies and the sixties, you know, every animation, human beings do not look like human beings. They do not have the correct anatomical proportions. And with this, we're turning around again to people who have been trained not to do correct anatomy and telling them you've got to do correct anatomy and you've got to do it on this budget and this time scale <laughs> alongside that sound that you're not used to having alongside the four three that you're not used to having it's it's just been i think it's been a huge eye-opener for them of looking at stuff and going we never thought we'd ever have to do animation like that so all of these things conspire against you in a way because you're having to sort of train people who've been trained in a completely different art to suddenly go, it's all got to look realistic because Doctor Who fans don't want exaggerated big heads and big eyes and you know, they want everyone to look like they, they're real human beings. And that leads you, if you're not careful, to what they call the uncanny valley situation, which is where you end up trying to make realistic human beings, which is why I think 3D, other than the Polar Express, has never done this because if you make a 3d character look like a normal human being it looks like a walking corpse it has no body language it has no ability to communicate all the things that we take for granted when we see a normal human being that's why animation is always exaggerated because it has no body language um, so the moment you try and make something look realistic but it can't have any of the attributes of realism it looks like dead bodies being walked around and that's that's doubly so in the case of 3D. So all of these things have been a sort of enormous learning curve and, and it's quite exciting for the guys at Jesus. They've enjoyed this, this challenge, um, but it has certainly been a challenge. And the other thing, of course, that animation doesn't normally do, which is hugely restrictive to the animators, is you work to a guide track. And then when the animation is finished normally, your actors go off and re-record all the dialogue to fit the animation. Well, in this case, they can't. Everything has got to be tied to the existing soundtrack. So not only have they got to lip sync every time William Hartnell makes a mistake, which is quite a lot in Galaxy 4, but also 60s television, this is not exclusive to Doctor Who in any way, shape or form. 60s TV was meant to be seen once and never seen again. So nobody really cared if somebody off screen dropped a script on the floor or kicked a camera or, you know, they might get shouted at. Or the worst one of all, of course, is you get the bleed through from the gallery so you can hear the director going, shot six, camera seven. Well, all of that is more, I mean, it was bad enough from Fury from the Deep, but on Galaxy 4, it's terrible, the amount of extraneous noise. And sometimes you, you, you add them in. You think, well, we can actually do something with that. Somebody can drop something, somebody can, stamp on the floor, somebody can clap, somebody can knock ourselves against a window or something. We've got tons of that going on in Abominable Snowman as well. But there is a great deal of it in Galaxy 4 and also you can tell which sequences were shot at Ealing and which sequences were shot in the video studio by the noise that Chumbly makes. Because in the video studio where there are other actors around, the sound is on. So you hear rumble as the Chumbly moves along. All the stuff they shot at Ealing was soundless. So there's no noise of Chumbly's and that's quite annoying because you're sitting there going, well, should we duplicate that sound and lay it in under every single Chumbly shot because there's some it's got a noise in and frankly, it would have been too much. It would have taken Marquez about another year to, to successfully do that. He was brilliant. We got him to duplicate some of the gun blasts. There's a big gun battle in episode four 
where the grams operator back in 1965 was probably half asleep and sometimes he'd put a gun blast in and sometimes he wouldn't. So Mark went through and added all the right gun blasts and, and dittoed the door open, that awful reuse of the Dalek door sound effect. And you think, ah, oh, so maybe, maybe the Jarvins were originally from the other side of Scarrow. But it's the same sound effect. But sometimes it's there and sometimes it isn't. So again, this is what I mean by enhancing. Nothing gets cut out, but we added a couple of extra door noises so that when the door opens, there's a noise to go with it in every shot rather than just the few random ones they had in 1965. So that's something that, that is fun to do and, and just sort of makes the animation work rather than if you didn't do it, I think it would underline. You go, well, why'd they open that door? There was no sound effect this time. And you think, well, because the characters had to get outside of the spaceship. So you can add things like that in. But it, it's it's a fun jigsaw puzzle doing these uh, recreations, these reimaginings. It's good fun. Gary, that's perfect. Thanks so much for your time and chatting to us on the didn't podcast. You didn't ask anything, did you, really? Not really, <laughs> no. Job. You're too good at this. You're an expert. <laughs> and huge thanks to my old pal Gary, although I shouldn't say old, for taking time out to have a wee chat. So... If the next thing he's working on is delayed by 40 minutes or so, then you know who to blame. But of course, the animated Galaxy 4 isn't the only material on this set. Let's have a wee chat, John, about the extant material. Do you remember where you were when you heard that Episode 3 of Galaxy 4, Airlock, had been recovered? I think I heard about it on on some sort of fan site. Not that I go onto fan sites very often, but <laughs> there was a bit of a buzz about it. and And that was... Yeah, that's how it came to my to my attention. I have to admit, a bit of me was going, "Oh, that's interesting." So, but you know, it's it's not one of the the big the big hitters that I would love to have seen found once again. But what I really enjoyed, and for me, it was one of the highlights of the edition, was the the the, the whole backstory and the the lovely human element of how it was bought in a job lot and how it was fixed up and brought to the attention of the. The Bully estate and all that, you know, it was, it was great. I loved that. It just shows you how, you know, somewhere out there in some rusting can in some, someone's back shed, there might be something, some piece of Doctor Who history. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, I agree. But it's a fabulous, wonderful story. Just complete coincidence with Rafe Montague having made contact with them through their love of cars. Yeah, I was mm-hmm. actually tipped off by one of my friends who was at missing believe white to say there's a doctor who missing episode announcement today and that all oh, interesting they said or should it be missing episodes and thought oh that's interesting you tend to think missing episodes come back one at a time but then to be told that two were coming back in the one day and said one's from a story that has no full episodes represented in the archives and one is from another story so that like what the heck could it be so of course it was underwater menace 2 and episode 3 from galaxy 4 so yeah it was because every time a missing episode recovery is made I go and listen to the soundtrack that's just something it's my wee ritual that I seem to have developed since Dalek Master Plan episode 2 was found and then go back into it so ah it was fun I should add that there's some amazing other extras in there as well there is the fantastic lack of telesnap reconstructions but we're still able to get a full representation of the story and the animated chumblies and they are fantastic and cgi'd and they look really really good as they move and chumble around and the documentaries are absolutely top-notch as well especially when we get to see toby hayduck going to meet peter purvis with a mini chumbly with him great documentary and over the course of it peter definitely re-evaluates his thoughts on the story having been quite negative about it for a number of years 
The other fabulous thing that I thought in there was the archival footage and interviews. The fact we get an interview with William Ems, who wrote it from 1985 or 86 at a convention. And there's also Derek Martinez, who directed it, or partly directed it. And he was speaking in the early 2000s. So to have all these things in there, it's a fantastic package showing that stories from the 1960s, there's still new content to be had for us as viewers. And of course, we also get the clip from episode one which was one that I'd heard about in the 90s in fan circles that it existed, that Jan Vincent Rudsky had got the offcuts from the Who's Doctor Who documentary, but you never really think you're going to get to see it. And then, of course, there it is in its full restored glory. And what a great job they've done in cleaning it up as well, considering the quality of it before. Yeah, yeah. Amazing, amazing stuff. And also with the cine film clips that the director, I think it's Derek Martinez, having taken over from Mervyn Pinfield, you get some wonderful camera angles that start up high and then it drops down low and you get that in the opening shot in the TARDIS as the doctors at the controls while Stephen's getting his hair cut. And then later on when we enter the Draven ship, we get that sort of high angle drops down thing. It's some really nice wee touches and you think this actually would have been, mm -hmm. the original stuff would have been really good to see. So fingers crossed that they do show up. Of course we want them all back, but it does make you think there's still these wee touches that you wouldn't expect in a 60s Doctor Who. Yeah. It's often easy to overlook the amount of restoration that goes into these Blu-ray releases and because I'm a geek who likes to know all this stuff, guess what, John? You tell me. We've got another You've interview. You've got someone. Now. I have. Yeah. We've got a wee chat now with Peter Crocker from the Doctor Who restoration team who prepares these stories for Blu-ray releases. And in a rare interview, here's Peter having an exclusive chat with us about the process of restoring the clip from episode one and all of episode three. Yes, so I'm Peter Crocker and I do the picture restoration on the Doctor Who Blu-ray releases. Can I ask you a little bit about the restoration work on Galaxy 4, which we've just all had dropping into our shops. Really impressed, particularly by the, the segment from episode one as well. That just has never looked better. That must have taken quite a long time to do something so short. Yeah. The main the main difficulty, I think, the problem with both uh, chunks of Galaxy 4, Episode 3 and the Episode 1 clip, is really that the films are quite worn and battered. Anything that's come from the BBC archives, or even for the most part, not not completely, because there were some issues with Enemy of the World and minor issues with, with Web of Fear, but, but for the most part, prints that have been through broadcasters tend to be quite well looked after. They, they haven't been run very often, and if they have been run, they're you know, probably single figures, actually, for broadcasters. And, and if they have been, been run, they've generally been run through well-maintained professional equipment. And once things pass into the hands of private collectors, that's no longer a given. You know, the, 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 the films could be shown any number of times. And while, they'll, while private collectors will probably store things reasonably well, and most, uh, most film collectors are quite good at showing things, Inevitably, their equipment is not going to be maintained to the level of a broadcaster and things can happen. And the main things that happen is films get scratched. So episode three of uh, Galaxy 4 had an awful lot of scratches on it, which hopefully you can't see on the new version. And episode one, again, although that little clip that Yamin Zadrudski rescued, you know, hasn't been projected or shown very many times. So, so it's physically not very damaged. It's it's a it's a duplicate print. It's uh, the it, it isn't quite as detailed. 
and there's still the sort of damage you expect to uh, and, and dirt on it that you expect from a film that dates from well over 50 years ago. So it's, it's just, it's just, you just have to go through it carefully. The sort of damage you have on film like that, you can take a, a, you know, a fair amount of it out with automated dirt and scratch removal tools, but you have to use those very, very carefully and sparingly because if you overuse them, you start introducing more problems that weren't there in the first place and you spend all your time undoing things that have been overcooked. So the usual thing is a very light automated pass to take out a bit of dirt and then it's back to the frame by frame manual task, which, you know, you know, it, 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 it's it time consuming, but it doesn't take that long. It probably took about it probably took about a day and a half to clean up the six minute clip and about a week to do episode three. Is that working from the DVD master from the Aztec Special Edition? Yes, well, yes and no. Yes and no. We had a new scan done of the segment from episode one, which was a, it's a 2K scan, slightly more than, than HD, which is massively overdoing it, really, for the original 405 resolution of the, um, of, of the programme that was recorded. But... What that does for us is it gives us a very large amount of headroom between the, the detail that is captured on the film and the amount of detail that was in the picture originally. And where that's really helpful, it doesn't matter so much for bits of dirt, because bits of dirt, you're just largely overpainting with pixels from adjacent frames, which, which is fine. But where it really helps having that headroom is, is with scratches, because you can, um, you can differentiate very well the difference between where a scratch starts and ends and where the actual picture underneath it starts and ends. And a good example of where that was very helpful is that in the scene where uh, Margaret is talking and it slowly zooms in to a massive close-up of her face, there are tramline scratches going all the way through that. And when it was on uh, DVD and we were working at standard definition, even though the uh, SD is still gives a bit of headroom over and above the original 405 line resolution. We were definitely still getting some artifacts on the scratch removal where it was crossing her hair because the fine, well, well, if, if someone's hair is positioned vertically, it can look like a scratch. So, so any scratch removal tool will probably take out the hair as well. And that's not good. So, so by scanning at, uh, at 2K, Still wasn't easy, but it was possible to, I think, do a fairly close to perfect removal of the scratch without affecting any of the detail in Margaret's hair um, where the scratch crossed it. Um, and it's little things like that which which really help by doing it in HD. Of course, it isn't HD. It's you know it's but but it's a it's a very good representation of the of the quality of what's on the film. It's also easier to to differentiate between film grain which is which which is a form of noise which wouldn't have been there on the original transmission and and detail in the picture so it so it helps us to get rid of the grain without damaging any genuine picture detail yeah you must have been pleased with the reception to it it's the animation's been it's gone down well the restoration's gone down well it's just a really really good package 
Uh, yeah, well, that, that's what we always aim for. You know, it's all about giving the fans both value for money, but also just giving them a package that they'll cherish and uh, they're really, you know, they'll really want to own and go back to. I've not seen the animation yet. I, I wasn't involved in that. I, uh, I'm involved in the um, production of the final masters of the ones that come through Anne Marie's team, uh, like Evil of the Daleks and the Faceless Ones. Uh, they use me as a, a final pair of eyes to uh, to check for little little things like characters sort of disappearing a little bit too quickly. It's all very easy to do because these things are right done right up to the wire with the deadlines. There's always something that I spot that they've missed, and there'll always be things inevitably that I missed as well that fans will you know pick up when it's actually out on the shelves. That's that's just the nature of the complexity of the work, the difficulty of working to very tight budgets and timescales, uh, small teams working on it. And you know everyone does their best, but uh, I like to think that the, the, the tiny little errors that always inevitably slip through are just our little homage to all of the similar little errors and things in the original programme that the people that made the programme would have, you know, would have liked to fix if they'd been able to, but but they couldn't. It's the animated version of a stray mic or something like that dropping into shorts. That's what it is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, 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 that's exactly it. That's exactly it. Yeah. The other thing that people might or might not notice on episode three of Airlock is it's the first outing for the uh, for the new and what might be the the final version of the remade William Hartnell opening title sequence. Because that's always been a problem. Because it's uh, for, the, for a, an awful long time, we didn't have any film copy of the title sequence at all. We only had, had what was on the film recordings of the episodes, and in almost every case, they're out of phase, which is not ideal. And on the one or two episodes which happen to have the opening titles in phase, they're terribly zoomed in, which so so it's missing a lot of the image around the edges, so that's not ideal either. But over the last few years, we've tracked down, I can't remember if it's now two or three. No, that it's, it's, we've got two full copies of it on film, both of which are absolutely knackered, um, and just physically not, not terribly good, but they are complete. And then and there's also the uh, a chunk in the middle that's from the trailer, 35 millimeter trailer for the Dalek Invasion of Earth, which uses a, a section in the middle, which is from film and quite nice. And we've also got some of the build-up material, which is not all, not all of it, but we've finally got all of those disparate elements scanned in 2K. Uh, so I was able to mix and match and put together currently the best version of it. So you know that's probably what we'll use from now on in any of the rest of the episodes we do. I think it looks quite nice. You know, I actually thought it looked just super sharp. I just thought. I thought there was something mm. different about it, and I, d I just hadn't realised that's what it was. So now I know. The bit that looks absolutely the best is the is the sort of middle bit where there's most of the sort of action going on, where where the words Doctor Who start to form, and that that section in the middle comes from the um, the build-up material. So that is actually the most original generation of that. So so that's as good as it can possibly be. Everything else is mixed and matched from the, you know, the best available source that, that we have. But yeah, it's, it's always been a bugbear of mine that that was the one sequence which we couldn't get close to the original. Even the Colin Baker sequence, the, the bit in the middle of that, most of it is is from film now rather than a, a tape transfer. But yeah, it's, it's one of my favorite uh, title sequences. It's quite simple, but it's uh, the original and to some of the best. <laughs>
It's mesmerising, hypnotic, love it. Peter, thank you once again for your time. Okay, and no we'll problem. speak to you again soon. Yeah, I hope so. Cheers, Kenny. All the best. So our thanks to Peter. And when I spoke with him, he was actually working on a top secret project, which he wouldn't reveal. But he did tease that it would be shown on TV this Christmas. And I've now realised after reading it in the Daily Mirror that it's a restored version of a lost Morecambe and Wise episode, which has been brought back to full colour, vid-fired the lot, which is rather cool. Wonderful. We all like a bit of Morecambe and Wise at Christmas. Exactly. It's just something of a tradition, isn't it, here? We're just to be able to see these things because I think it was shown in black and white or bits of it were shown in black and white on ITV earlier this year but this is the full restoration shebang and cannot wait to see what they've done with it it's just amazing what they can do taking black and white film prints and making them look like original videotape in colour it's yeah, magic it is magic little short of magic <laughs> and of course it was announced on Tuesday on Doctor Who's birthday the 23rd of November that the next animation has been announced and it's going to be the Abominable Snowmen from Gary Russell and his team. So does that excite you at all? It excites me more than I can possibly put into words. Uh, <laughs> unlike unlike Galaxy 4, which, uh, as I said, I, I came to possess the novelization very late in the day and still haven't read Slap on the Wrist. The Abominable Snowmen, or the Yeti, um, was one of the, the very first novelizations that I read back in the day in its first Target paperback issue with the block black Doctor Who font as well, which I still have in my Doctor Who archive. So yeah, I'm, I'm very excited by that. It's a story that, well, obviously only only one episode survives, but it's one that thanks to the novelization and those illustrations in the original Target novelization that I have set and imagined in my head so many times. So I'm absolutely thrilled the prospect. It's still just so exciting just having these Troughton stories come back in one form or another and that just means that from here on in there's just one story left in season five needing completed and that's The Wheel in Space. So John, which would you like to be next to be animated of all the stories that need to be done? Well it might sound to our casual listener that uh, you're setting me up to, to say The Wheel in Space but that is in fact one <laughs> intend to say anyway because Yay! because of the the work that's already been done on it and, and unless it was a, a dream that i was having uh, a substantial portion of episode one was in fact was the whole of episode one it was 10 minutes of episode one but done very beautifully i thought so yeah the completest in me would want to say yeah the wheel in space i know some people regard it as not being the most exciting of stories but i would like to see it and it's also got Cybermen in it, which makes it sellable as well, I would have said. So mm. yeah. So I'd say that most likely I'd probably go with that. But then part of me is, is quite masochistic and things. I'd quite like the Space Pirates completed as well. Even though the sound quality of it isn't that great, it's quite a, an empty sounding audio. I think it came from Australia, that recording that survives. But because it's so different and it's a Robert Holmes script, and yes, there are hugely boring sequences in it, but you'd imagine the animated spaceships look great and there's some interesting characters in there. So I'm probably mm -hmm. going between either of those two to finish off either season five or season six. Mm -hmm. But then I think the Highlanders, I'd quite like to see the Highlanders done despite the problems they'd all have with kilts moving around and such likes. But I think that would be quite an interesting one as well. So we get Jamie's debut and that edges us closer to completing season four. Aha, decisions, decisions. There's an embarrassment of riches really, isn't there? Yeah. So exciting. It is. So John, 
you better tell everybody where people can follow you on Twitter. Well, I've decided to change my Twitter handle uh, in honour of the only piece of the animation of Galaxy 4 which <laughs> slightly rankled with me, and that was when they decided to decorate, or not decorate, but um, populate the, the real spaceship with what appeared to be circuit board anaglypta. So uh, I am going to be changing my Twitter handle to Dr. Circuit Board Anaglypta at Twitter. No, not really. <laughs> uh, I am still uh, at Dr. J McGB on Twitter, and that's the only social medium uh, on which I'm remotely active. So ah. that's where I may be found. Excellent. Well, you can follow me at Finished Zine, that's F-I-N-I-S-H-E-D-Z-I-N-E, or if you're listening America, Z-I-N-E. And you can find out all about my Doctor Who stuff that I endlessly witter on about or Twitter on about. And I also talk about the other Doctor Who podcasts that I do on there, the Pieces of Eight, which reaches its second season finale tomorrow as this episode drops with the second part of our interview with Matty Jacobs about writing the TV movie, which was quite interesting. And we'll also reveal what's going to be in our Christmas episode. But you wow. can follow Power of Three podcast on Twitter. We are at Power of Three Pod. That's Power of Three with the number three rather than written out in full. And you can find out about latest episodes and stuff and nonsense in there. So that's us out of time and space once again. John, as Rassilon once said, it's time to make your farewells and leave. Oh, really? Do I have to? Yes. Oh. Because if we don't go, we can't come back. That's true. Are you going to pop me back in my time stream? Indeed. And you can go back to your day-to-day activities and getting your Doctor Who figurines sorted out. And it's a tatty buy from me as well. But of course, before we finish, John, have you got a question for me? Well, uh, reading through the scrolls of Rassilon, what are you going to play us out with, Kenny? Well, John, thank you for asking me that, because we've been talking about those naughty space ladies, the Dravins today, and of course, Mm. they didn't have a lot of luck with their spaceship, so maybe they should stick to a more simple form of vehicle. And guys, don't write in saying that's sexist, because it's not. I'm just saying that they should perhaps get a vehicle with four wheels, and they can join Madness as they go Dravin in their car. Oh my god. Oh, that's a space war crime right there. <laughs> <laughs>